And now is part two of our exciting episode of giving the mic to the wrong person. So last year, I'd say my stress level was way, way lower. This year, it is it is different. One of the things is there's been a demand that we reach out to 200 kids' parents weekly by phone, not by email. And we also have to come into the office a lot more. We have to generate a lot more paperwork. Some of that is because we have to be, be seen as doing our job, and they keep on adding to what that means. So I suspect in a lot of areas, the relative peaceability of online, classing, online classes that we had last year will go away. However, it's still not as stressful as managing a classroom, particularly particularly right now. And that's, I, I also think we are learning how a lot of these kids and a lot of these parents have been put in a really weird situation because on one hand, we've been discouraging last latchkey kidism, even by law since the nineties. And on the other hand, like people work more. There's, there's now in Utah, there's, there are some exceptions to that because we have a lot of stay at home Mormon moms, frankly, but even that's been declining and it's while there are a lot of women who are now out of the workforce who are staying out of the workforce that they're coming they're going back and it's been often quite difficult to reach any person who can vouch for some of these students and i deal with an older age group but like we need to see like someone who's going to sign off on something we're now realizing that like we don't know that parents ever were actually like like we don't know that we ever had good contact information for these parents etc and so forth and so we're doing that the other thing that we're running up into is the complications of FERPA and HIPAA laws which had kind of been ignored not ignored but like not as rigorously enforced prior to prior to COVID and by that I mean uh, I don't mean that like teachers were violating it, but they were asking uh, kids to use all kinds of like educational supplements which sell their data. Well, that's illegal, actually. It is a violation of of, of FERPA, and so there's there's been an increasing like realization that we we can't use a lot of these techno business technologies because they make money off of kids by by data extraction and. We can't allow that because it is a violation of FERPA. And nobody was at the wheel on that for a while. Now, different states can interpret. One of the things about federal education, like state case law, means that it's highly localized in how it is enforced. States get a pretty large leeway on how they interpret federal statutes, but except on things like special ed and on civil rights compliance. But it's still been it's still been an eye opening issue. And it's one where we haven't really been thinking about it before. Like we just weren't thinking about how much data, you know, these online things have been extracting. And then we realized, oh, crap, we've been using all the stuff that does this. And so we've been scrounging to get special agreements with services to say that they won't collect data this way or to make sure that we were actually in use with their compliance policies and this and the other. And there's been that. There's also the fact, and this hasn't come up in the conversation, but we have like the tendency towards uh, board and and administrative uh, overhead has increased, and yet like during the last years, it's not clear what they do during the during the pandemic. Whenever we hit a wall, they basically we would go to a lot of the departments, and this is why I'm not saying where I would teach, and and they would be kind of flabbergasted just like we were, and then they would tell us, you know, to hire out, and we were eventually just got like, well, then why why do we have all these services if they can't handle an emergency? Or, like, even basic functioning with any change whatsoever. It's like, honestly, it's like the line from the line from Office Space. is like, what do you say you do do here? And so, or, you know, and then... It's disproportionately fell in different parts of the school. One thing that I also have learned from my change during COVID is that as a teacher, you are so removed from most of the actual workings of a school district until you work for the district level. Like as a classroom teacher, you really don't 
usually understand all the workings of your district unless your district is very, very small. And that has a lot of effects. And a lot a lot of teachers have discovered things that they didn't know about the way their school districts worked in the last year. Um, is that a good or a bad thing? It's both. It's a good thing that your teachers having knowledge is probably a good idea. But the fact that they, they didn't know it, but also like they don't have any control over it has not seemed, been... It seems like it would add helpful. to the cognitive load. It's it's made it's increased frustration during our school board recent school board session with teachers. There's a committee where teachers voice their opinions. Even you know even I who you know I'm a rabid labor person, you know big part of the union in some ways was kind of taken back by how what some of the teachers were expecting the school board to be able to do. But then I realized like this is this is actually frustration from from a year and a half of other stuff. And they can't, and they know they can't do anything about it. So, so it's being channeled into this. Yeah, it's being channeled in this, and it's being channeled in stuff that, like, well, the school board's not legislatively in control of that, or like, we we don't have the people. Like, the school board would love to to find subs. There aren't any for for the last decade. We've been mostly reti- relying on retired teachers. So you know, because who else is going to do it unless someone has a pretty stable base income? Because subbing, and like, except for a few states, pays crap. I mean, yeah. like in some states, it pays as low as eighty dollars a day. You know, so I guess that's ten bucks an hour. Which right now, there's not a there. I don't think there's a job you could get that's even like a high school cashier's job that wouldn't pay that. Like, yeah, Taco Bell is like fifteen bucks an hour, and even like the yeah, like all the all. Yeah. I was in rural Georgia, and 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 Waffle House was paying eleven fifty an hour. Just you know, putting that in perspective. Jeez. So. There, we the school on very low wage labor, mainly done by people who had the excess capacity through retirement to do it. We also have a polarized workforce that there aren't that many teachers my age. Like you know, I'm in my middle age, my I'm in my my early 40s, and most teachers are either in their 20s or in their 60s. Like that's the spread, and a lot of people in their 60s are now retiring. Yeah, so, I was gonna say, but our parents are two retired uh, public high school English teachers, and even just like the thought of them even considering like helping out, with their, I just have to giggle at just uh, probably how vehemently my own dad would refuse. He's like, I'm not going back in there. But aside yeah, from they never once, they never once subbed. They were done after you know just over thirty years, and they were like, see, yeah, we're done. We put in our time. But then you have. In my area, now, if you are an administrator, you live the high life when you retire because in because we're countywide and we are continually opening new schools every year because it's just so getting bigger and bigger and bigger, they're always in need of an admin somewhere. So you have to wait six months, and then admin are just making bank being interim admin at any level, and... We had a couple that have been retired from our school that have been interim admin for the last three years, other schools, and are, I mean, the amount of money, it almost makes me want to go into administration for my last, like, five years of teaching. Because I could, you know, I could retire at 55 and have my 30 years in, and then if I was an admin... I, I I would be making so much money being an interim, you know, a month here, three months there, four months there at a school, just being a body in place, you know, not having to do much. I'm just physically a human in that spot, making great money. And so it's just crazy to think that. But, you know, for teachers, nothing, you know, you're just making that sub pay. And I would much rather get a job at some random store than have to go back into a classroom after being retired of 30 years and making less than minimum, you know, making minimum wage to go do it again. I would just think you gotta be crazy. If I get close to retirement age, I'm leaving the country. I mean, it, <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking. I've been in the international school circuit. It's where there's actual money. One of the things I would say is we actually are beginning to have administration shortages for, for specifically site principles i guess navigating the very it seems like similar to in nclb although in nclb we were just firing admin left and right back in you know 15 years ago but it seems like similar the pressures of trying to figure out who you answer to 
are getting super. I don't think that's the case with board admin, uh, with board admin, which, you know, board admin are people who work for the school board, but are not working curriculum or whatever. And we have a ton, even, even in our area. And it, the, their value added is somewhat questionable. And, and during COVID, it's become a little bit more obviously so. But there is a way to, if you're willing to sub as an admin or do interim admin right now, yes, there's a ton of money in it. There's also like we're admin, like most schools are admin heavy compared to what they were um, 15, 20 years ago. And it's not even because we don't need them. Like that's the thing. Like we admin really, when they're doing their job, they are doing a lot in a high school. I don't actually know about the other grade levels, but it's, but it's, it's not, it's harder and harder to see like what's going to give because I guess maybe this will be something that talk about that we haven't talked about yet because i deal with transitioning kids in the college i I teach now i teach all grades ninth through through 12th in some variety so college admissions there was a move that a lot of teachers and a lot of leftists thought were super progressive the act and i in general agree that these tests are super biased and bad and blah, blah 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 but it's actually led to being unable to tell kids how they get into university they don't know and soft skills are being super, super, super important. And it, it's not—it's not even just grades because universities don't look at grades equally between schools. And I don't just mean like they—do they wait or not beyond the top ten percent? They often don't. They often have different criteria from what they want from different schools because the schools have different school ratings and they factor that in. But we don't know. Yeah, they get in. We don't, there's no clear criterion right now in lieu of some of those tests. And so all these soft skills, which upper middle class kids have a distinct advantage on, have become more important. And so we don't know what we're going to see there. What we are seeing is a massive decline of interest in higher ed in a lot of our lower middle class, particularly if they are not first generation immigrants. All right, and we're back. Also, again, if anybody has any, you know, has any topics you want to bring up, you think we haven't covered yet that need to be, yeah, as as always, feel free to 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 join in on anything. But anyway, so we were talking about like school admin as well as what is it as well as transition you know the issue the rapidly changing issues about transitioning kids to you know to get college bound i think a lot of kids are realizing or are looking at the idea like do i need to go to college or you know is it worth that much money i know that our community colleges by me have really expanded um their campuses have gotten a lot bigger in the last I'd say five years, the campus size probably has doubled. And, you know, they've built some satellite areas in different parts of Raleigh for the campus. Just because I think a lot of people, they don't want to take on that student debt anymore. And they just are, they have the idea of, you know, is it actually worth it? Is it worth it if I go into, if, if my family, you know, it's the families that traditionally everybody goes to college. This is what we do. Those kids are always going to go. Right. That's that's what every you know expected. You know they don't they don't have to pay for school. You know, but I think more and more kids are deciding it's it's not really worth it, and I rather go into other jobs that I now see are making a lot of money, and I don't need a four year degree. I think with the tech industry around me, and it's getting bigger and bigger, especially in Raleigh. You know, I think a lot of people, a lot of younger people, are kind of like. I don't know if I have to have a full four year degree in something if I can start working my way up. Right. I would say you see similar calculations. And I've been walking students through these calculations. I mean, one thing I taught them to do is how to look up not just what the school costs, but how what percentage of student need they actually address and what their average four year graduation rate actually is because if you don't graduate in four years, add not only the cost of uh, school, but also the cost of losing at least half of your projected income during that year. And a lot of kids are, are beginning to opt for community college for two years because the the price is just not worth it to them. And also, if we're completely honest, their odds of completion, if they're a first-generation college student, is only about 56, 57%. So that's who gets really hurt by college debt. I'm sure the colleges are not happy about that. 
But a lot of the cost of college is sunk into things that COVID made irrelevant. So it's it's been interesting to see how that plays out. My only fear for the kids when they make these decisions, a lot of them make decisions based off of projected rates and, and job stability now. And while they don't know that I know this, but I do, you know, I, I'm fairly well versed in economics and I do worry that a lot of them go into rec- uh, recession prone jobs. So jobs that when the economy turns down, which it inevitably will, they're going to be out in their butt. That's been, that's traditionally been the problem with things like micro jobs are with promoting high levels of STEM education, ironically, because the, the, Every study I've seen on the promotion of STEM actually indicates that a lot of it outside of specific coding fields and very specific tech jobs where there is still a lot of work. A lot of it actually seems to be driven at creating an oversupply deliberately and driving down demand and thus wages. So and there's a there's a there's a couple of professors out of Arizona who've done studies on this. Now, I I have actually had my kids look at that when they're making uh, career decisions now tend to buy into a lot of the the rhetoric around the impracticality of school but you know it's hard for me to defend the universities like i mean if i'm honest like right now it's like you know my my partner works in university research assistants and i know how much of of the university is just just bureaucracy at this point and i'm sure that our other guests can speak on that probably but at the community colleges, that's much less so, and the kids are also more likely to get personal attention. And they're no longer, unfortunately, because of the oversupply of graduate students, likely to get, you know, e- even someone with my level of education. Like, when I was applying for community colleges, sure, I can get an adjunct one night there, and I have a terminal degree, but I'm, like, competing for, you know, when I was looking at working there, I was like, oh, I'm competing with people with, like, tier one school PhDs now for a community college job. That's it's that overproduced of the labor force. So so they're not even gonna get a bad deal for their money is who is like and who's teaching them, honestly. Like hmm. Yeah, there's a lot I have two friends that one she lives here and is has been back and forth between Michigan State because of where she got her PhD and just trying to find a job as a professor anywhere she she just said it's all these old people that won't retire <laughs> she said you know and I, you know that's that's what I a lot I have a few friends that are just finishing degrees and they've had a really hard time interviewing so many places because there're just so few openings because you have these professors staying at their schools later and later and later in life, you know, a pretty good gig. They've been there forever. They know what they're doing. They're not putting that huge stress level out there. And so I think they're really struggling with having, you know, this younger in this like mid thirties of finding jobs of places to be able to teach. Uh, yeah. Also, increasingly, programs are not hiring full-time prof- uh, full-time professors for the same job. So, as these people who are holding to their jobs re- retire, I was shocked when I discovered there is not a graduate program opening with no full-time faculty, a graduate program. Oh, wow. Hmm. So, like the the gigification of higher education is is getting pretty thorough. To the point that, like, if if someone was to ask me if they had a master's degree, should I become a secondary teacher? Or, or a professor, I'd be like, unless you come from a Ivy League school, secondary teacher is going to be a better paying job. Right. Yeah, yeah Melissa, what have you seen? Yeah. My college, I mean, well, because what I, you know, what I do is work with immigrant and refugee students. I mean, it's been horrible for years in terms of enrollment and especially once Trump was elected. And yeah, adjuncts at my college, we, we can't teach more than 30 hours a year or we, you know, go over this threshold. We have, we have, <laughs> we have health coverage for exactly nine part-time faculty, <laughs> nine out of wow. 180 or whatever we are. That's with the union. So yeah, it's, it's pretty rough out there. And all, I mean, almost all of us have to have other jobs and I've juggled as many as four different teaching positions in one term. I'm not doing that now, thank goodness, but I do have I do have a 32-hour-a-week social service job on top of my teaching just because teaching's not not enough and doesn't give me health coverage, so I have this other thing, which probably wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for COVID and the huge amounts of money that started 
um, flying around after the CARES Act and created a lot of new jobs for people, actually. So it's weird. The social service world is weird, but I'm, I'm happy to have it because it means that I can afford to keep teaching. Even when I only have one class a term, I can still make it. I was going to say, shit, I mean, this, is, like, this is making me wish that Candy was here because Candy does like par- I think paraeducator organ- a union organizing up in uh, Washington State and has been having to do like, a, you know, contract fights and you know has seen a lot of the stuff firsthand over the last few years well you would think that teachers would be in a good a good place for co- for contracts because our labor pool is so reduced right like we we were in 40 percent shortage in utah before covid and they were beginning to actually you know we were having our pay go up here which admittedly utah is one of the lowest pay states in the country it wasn't the lowest i think that was west virginia but it was like pretty close and my my the school district i work in was one of the low per cost per capita kids in the in the state too so they're spending something like five thousand dollars per kid per year which is very low that's no longer true but uh, that was true probably about seven or eight years ago and now we don't there's a lot of confusion as to what we can do the state was threatening to really retaliate against teachers for a while during covid and really cut our budget but they realized the kind of labor shortage they would have and they didn't go there and in fact they actually even increased they increased our funding even at the state level a little bit it's it's but it's interesting because politically speaking right now the teachers union is up against the wall and it's getting even its membership is pretty highly divided as i said earlier in a state like this but the rural schools have a disproportionate pool politically even though they don't really represent that many people either in either in teaching staff or in student population but like they're most of the state you know we have one we have two very very populated valleys. They're almost politically polarized. Utah Valley is very conservative. Salt Lake Valley is a modern metropolitan area, pretty moderate. And then the rest of the state is rural with schools that serve probably like, you know, 100 kids over like a 200 mile radius or something like it's, you know, so in they get a they get a pretty big say at the chair, and in fact, they're actually disproportionately represented in the union because they often don't charge that many local union dues. So it's pretty cheap for people to join and get their their insurance. Whereas, unfortunately, the liberal and urban areas charge a lot of local union dues, so they actually don't have very high union membership. So, like Salt Lake, and this is true across the country, urban teachers are most less likely to be in the union than suburban and rural teachers, which is something that people were not like people are kind of confused by. But in states where it's not closed shop, that's the way it seems to work. It's hard. It's when when you're making in Salt Lake City right now because of the cost of housing, it's very hard to predict, you know, what, you know, yeah, they get paid more than where I get paid, where I where I work and get paid. But the, the cost of housing and the cost of their benefits and whatnot means they actually probably don't. So it's it's a bad situation and it's only going to get worse because in our housing market here, and this is also affecting our schools, has gone insane. So Oh, yeah. Same. Well, we haven't had our legislation hasn't passed a budget in three years. So we haven't gotten a raise in three years. We might get our step just, you know, saying like, OK, I'm, I'm one year more, but we they yeah they haven't passed our budget and they keep like putting it off and refuse to patch it so we haven't had a raise in the three years and if we do if there is an increase it's always an increase to first year teachers so that we aren't the lowest you know like on the map when you google the lowest paid states you know north carolina was always right there with you with being so low so they raised the first year income teachers but then once you've taught for about 10 years you know, you are, you're just kind of stagnant, you know, it's, you're just not making that much more ever. So it gets, people get really frustrated, you know, cause they don't pay. If you were to get your master's, they don't pay you anymore anymore for that. You know, I already had mine when I moved, so I was paid for it, but they, they do push, you know, to be nationally board certified, which they used to pay for you to go through it, but now they don't. And that's about a five. I want to say, I think that's 5% of your salary increase. But now you have to redo it every couple of years. So it's when you start doing the math, you're like, mm, is this even worth it? The amount of time and effort that you're putting into it. 
Yeah, um, national board is ridiculously hard to get. A lot of places don't pay for it anymore. Like in Utah, they, we don't even get a step raise for it. Like it's it's totally prestige only. But yeah, having worked in many different states, the pay the, the pay the pay structure in different states are wildly variant. As are how they're funded because we don't really need. We don't really need legislative fiats for our funding. We get it as most of it's local and the budgets passed locally. But that's not true in other states. And I know that. And yeah, I mean, when I started teaching, we actually lost money. Like we were taking so much furlough days and stuff that we 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 our pay went down from year to year. And we still have a situation where the like cost of living is so is really outpacing any step raises or whatever. So it's hard to see what the outcome is going to be, except that I, I just, I don't know. I, I'm actually kind of, I think a lot of schools are going to push more online stuff just because even they can't physically hold the students, literally yeah. <laughs> in some of these Western states where the class sizes are already, you know, 40, 45. You can't physically put more kids than 45 kids in some of these classrooms. Like you physically, no, they're, they're, not, fit. they're not built for it. They're not made for it. <laughs> physically can't sit. I have a, I have a question. This might be a bit more of a, I don't know, speculative or philosophical question, but what actually happens if and or when? Because it's like, listening to you, what have you, uh, you have talked about all of the breakdowns and the kind of the massive changes over just like the last year and a half or so. But what is the political economic effect do you think is going to be when I can't really think of a better way to articulate this, but when like education stops functioning? When you have, when like the, the, the entire like post-war model of what, of why you have like mass public education, you know, and you know, the various grades and also to even like, you know, post, post-secondary education, like what with, we're seeing stuff as like, you know, you're talking about how you're getting like, just like socialization and sk- and rapid de-skilling after just a year of like online or anything like that, but also like a bunch of with, you know, a massive change over from, you know, even amongst like, you know, good middle school kids saying screw for, you know, four years of university debt, you know, they'll just go to like a community college and get maybe, I don't know, like, or head to whatever like two year nursing school will happen because of like all of the needs for like home health care or something like what actually happens when like the entire because we've seen right now all the people who are in charge of all these systems can't self reproduce or can't you know they can't replenish themselves or even you know they can't make decisions to keep the thing going because for for what you know they they lack that ability and so like what happens next. If anybody wants Study to study the Soviet Union's decline. So I'm gonna. Say, I mean, like, I, I know that sounds dire, but I mean, like, these social institutions aren't gonna go away. They're just gonna be barely functional and sclerotic. And what's likely to happen is that you're gonna have a, about a generation that is has. Uh, well, I mean, you're already seeing it. Murder rates have gone up, and there's no there's no singular attribution you can give that to. A part of that is also, you know, this is again, I'm I'm good on stats, like. Murder clearances has have gone down, meaning that cops aren't solving murders anyway. So you can't even say that like increasing the police would have fixed it. So like it's 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 in some ways, I don't you know I don't think it's going to be social collapse. I don't think we're going to have like it's not going to be Lord of the Flies land, but it's going to get things are going to get that much more crappy as far as like the you know as far as the the market with a lot of boomers frankly dying. You know, don't mean to be morbid, but. Just just from natural attrition at this point, not even from COVID, there's going to be a lot more space in the market and using credentialing to hoist that to to artificially restrict access to jobs will not be as necessary. However, if you think people are gullible now, they're not likely to get a whole lot better. And and so, yeah, I do think what you'll see, though, I think a lot of local communities and stuff will start rebuilding these institutions locally, but there's going to be big, big political fights over it. And it's going to also be a lot more piecemeal how it's going to look. There's going to be a lot more differences between parts of the country, I think, like mm-hmm. even more than there already is. And there's already a lot. Yeah. And I also think the rich and, and those who are just lucky enough to go to a rich school, even if you're not rich yourself, are going to have uh, a lot of advantages and other places are just not. Like and the one the other thing I'd say is uh, is uh, believe it or not urban schools and stuff are not particularly underfunded despite popular belief on this it's just that they can't go a lot of times into 
like direct education or it goes into teachers, but temporarily there's lots of temporary funds to go in and out with grants to go to these schools. And those things are going to start to dry up eventually. Like I, I, I don't think, for example, barring another massive infrastructure bill that's specifically focused around education, that a lot of the supports that we currently have with teachers, you know, going into main things up over COVID are going to stay, but I don't think the expectations are going to go away. Like whenever expectations are added to schools, they don't leave. Like, right. So, so, so what happens when that, well, you have to do it too bad, figure out a way. And I think it's just, well, I do think there is a change among teachers where that's that belief of like, Oh, well, you know, you went in this job to help kids. So you're, you, you know, you're going to stay all these hours for free and oh, yeah. you're going to go above and beyond. And I think what they're realizing the essential workers. Um, yeah. This is yeah, your mission. What they're realizing is like uh, these younger people are like, nope. Like I know myself after year three, I don't bring anything home because I say I'm not getting paid. Uh, like I don't live this job. The fact that I have to work two teaching jobs, plus I coach, plus I do little side jobs here and there. I don't, I won't answer my email after four o'clock thank you and i'm not gonna do this or that and you you won't be able to hold me past my contract hours and i think a lot of schools are all of a sudden like i think that's a big shift right now between a lot of people saying my time is more important to me and i gone are the idea that you know these teachers their whole life is this school and they're gonna do all this for free and do you know like Mm. i think you know a lot of people are like nope no, thanks. No, I think that's good. I think that's great because, you know, I mean, nobody goes into teaching for the money. But honestly, right. you know, we do it because we we love the work and because we care about the students. But that love and care and passion is not, not an excuse for or a free pass for exploitation. Right? right. And I think that's what they've done. That's what it's always been that way for teachers. Yeah. But I do think this next generation of teachers, I think a lot of them are like, nope, sorry, too bad. You know, and it's and I think a lot of, the, you know, these older admin and older teachers are like, well, you know, they just they aren't getting it yet. And I so I do think it will. The profession's going to change a lot in the next 10 or 15 years of teachers being like, this might be my job. This is my contract. I'm done at this time. I won't put all of this extra stuff in. And this, you know, if you're only going to pay me for this, then this is what you're going to get from me, you know? And because I think they're just, just in the past how we've always been looked because I've had admin saying, well, I need you to stay for this and that. And I, and I say, nope, that's past my contract hours. I'm not going to. Thank you. Yeah. And they can't really public punish us for it anymore either because like, right. who are they going to get to do this job? Like, exactly. Like no one else is going to do it. So and a lot of uh, what's hard for me is I just think I love this job. I don't know what else I would do. I know there's a lot of jobs out there that I could do. And I'm also in that weird time age of this is year 18. Do I want to start all over in some other career? Because you do look at how much you put in your retirement and your pension and all of these things. And it's like, do I want to start all over again? Am I going to continue in this? Can I? I, I'm lucky to be in a nicer area, but I also don't recommend that kids go into teaching. Yeah, I don't tell people to go into teaching. I, I don't tell anybody to go into teaching. And the people who are quitting earlier, I do notice like they do have a partner that has a good job to where they can do other things. You know, yeah. if I had a partner that had a good job, I probably wouldn't still be teaching. I could do my I could do my online job. I, one of my friends quit last year. She has the same online teaching job that I have. But her husband has been a lawyer for about four or five years now. And she's like, oh, we're fine. We're fine on his job and me doing this online job. And I'm so much happier now. And so I know, I, you know, I like I know that personally, if I had a husband that had a great job, I'd be like, see a daytime. I'll just do this online gig and my stress level would be none. <laughs> I was going to say, Beth, we're, we're Gen X. We, we probably won't be able to retire. Or whatever yeah, it looks we, like, but we're, we're right in that middle, just enough. Like we're the last few. I feel like with our age, where I'm like, I'm gonna finish this out. I'm probably gonna teach a couple years, you know, 35 years, and then I'm gonna be done. But anyone younger than me, I'm like, that's fine to do this for like your first couple years. But I also need you to figure out something else you're going to do. Yeah, 
I, I'm going to take my 401k and go to South America, and that's not a joke. We'll see. Depends. Depends. A lot of stuff can happen between now and then, so I'm not making that call. You know, it's 20 years away. But so you're heading to Santiago then? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> that sounds like I've already lived in Mexico, so it's not it's not that hard. One one thing I would say is that we need to keep in mind that in all these statistics before COVID, the average teacher only taught four years. Like the the like it is if you make it to year five, most people stay at least for a while. Although that might be changing, but I mean it's been for a decade. You know this was true even before even before uh, NCLB got hard. Most new teachers don't stay teaching, and in fact that's been an issue with the union because the union doesn't didn't for a long time invest in new teachers because they didn't think they were going to stay long enough to really contribute. Oh so they yeah, they really try to recruit people to their like four year four or five. Yeah, what is it? Over half, over half of teachers by year five quit because they yeah. say, "Forget this." And so, I don't think there's very many jobs out there like that where you put that amount of education into something, and then within those first couple of years, and say, "Nope." Right, and I, I don't see that getting any better. The yeah. other thing is, I do think, I do think the bottom's going to eventually fall out of this all this expansion of admin. I do think that's, I think a lot of communities, as mad as they are at teachers, they're also beginning to look at the the rest of the structure of schools. And so for a long time, they've been mad about the cost of schools at teacher, even though we're not. Why? Like, you know, this is a stat I throw out all the time. Teacher pay has been locked, relatively consistent or downward. For 15, for 15 years, in terms of purchasing power, our, our raises have not outpaced inflation. And and 93% of all school funds goes into uh, staffing. If it has doubled the cost of staffing in the last decade, which it has, depending on the state, it does vary by state, uh, but in aggregate it has, then where's all that money going? Well, it's it's the only thing I can figure is increase in this and in, in support admin, not in like lower level support staff, not in paras, not in not in office ladies, not in any of that, not in attendance officer. It's gone into administrative staff. And there has been an increase both at site and board admin to a massive amount, some of which is for legal compliance, some of which is cost disease, some of which I don't I don't really even know. And I'm also tempted to go that route. I mean, I, I struggle with it because I kind of don't think some of these jobs should exist, but I'm like, but if I want to make money as a teacher, what, what do you do? That's well, you go into admin. That's the only way I'm telling you, at least in my district, in my County, because you know, it's based on how many kids you are at your school on your pay rate. And then, but really for, for me, it, it, the eye opener of the retired admin willing to be these interim admin because of how much they're needed. I was like, this is insane. Why am I not an admin? Well, you know, I don't want to deal with that whole aspect of it, but it is definitely something to think about if I turn, when I turn 50 to be like, Hmm. Something I could do. I will say I'm going to let everybody go since I have school in the morning and I'm on the East Coast time. But it has been delightful to talk to everybody again. And, Jer, I'll talk to you soon. Yep, talk to you again. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Thanks for coming by. All right. Bye, everyone. Later. You'll see uh, the last question I had. And this kind of like, I think both of you can answer this in a certain, in some sort of a way is, and this is kind of connected to my last question, but it was like, what happens, what, ha- uh, what happens to, uh, again, this is more, more speculative or something, but what happens to just our, you know, because education is effectively, you know, just not, not just warehousing, but also at least some basic training for a mass labor force. Like what happens when it loses that ability to, you know, to reproduce a labor, you know, an entire labor force or in, in like what change, you know, can you see like how will societal changes come about to try to, to try to like compensate for that fact? Or is that going to, is that going to happen at all? You know, again, Soviet Union decline. Things can, things can, the world cannot end perfectly fine and everything go to crap for years and years and years. Politically, that will probably mean that things will get even more polarized than they even are, which is hard to imagine, but people are siloed and they don't have a lot of critical thinking skills. And, and there, it's also like, there's a paradox to right now, Jeremy, if you really think about it, because a lot of the stuff that we used to keep in education Mm -hmm. is now available for free, but people, don't have enough skills to access it like that ironically so like 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 
you know, what, what do I do when my kid when a kid asks me to find something for them that they're confused on? Well, I explain it to them, and if I don't understand it, I go find a YouTube video, right? And then that's how my car guy fixes my car. Just you know, does a basic. You know, he he's like, "What's the problem?" Like, he does this. He's like, "Okay." He looks at his phone, watches a thirty second video. He's like, "Okay," and goes goes to town on it. You know, it's like almost like almost like almost immediately downloading a skill. You could say, right? I know kung fu. Show me. I mean, it's not it's not a hundred percent effective, but it's it's not like if you're all you're concerned with skills, then a lot of the stuff is available. I am concerned about general literacy because it is declining. I actually don't think I'm one of those people who don't think that it's really schools. I think it's actually information infrastructure. That's because even during millennials' upbringing, internet culture was largely written, and that's not true anymore. And so, like you know, yeah, the yeah, all of us under forty, and I'm not under forty, but I'll pretend to be for argument's sake. Grew up in a world where, like, we read blogs all the time, blah blah blah. But we were reading all the time, actually. Younger people actually read more books than than older people on average uh, right now. But that's not true for the generation beneath them. It's just not like. They're not, by and large, readers. Which kind of scares me. It may. I mean, who knows? I, 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 I don't want to sound all doom and gloom, but what I do see is, like, the same problems you see in American infrastructure across the board, where it's just fraying, that's not going to stop in education. And, and while there are pat- – people are throwing money at us right now, like, we'd have to do major reforms that nobody would be happy with, all right, to really fix this. And I'm, I'm talking about stuff like, okay, you might have to, like – Form regional regional consortiums and like take away certain kinds of autonomy from certain states, but also maybe also reduce certain kinds of federal funding because we don't have the people to enforce compliance. Mm. Like that kind of problem may be on the horizon. But I mean, the other thing is, I mean, population is also declining. So who knows? Like who knows what our problems are going to be? Right. One thing I'll also say is the schools are not handling the influx of non-English speakers very well. And I, I work in I'm also I'm EL I'm I'm ELL certified, so I also deal with that, and 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 almost every major school in the country now, like you, you, you know, if you're if you're not a a rich white suburb, you have thirty to forty percent non-English speakers as the base of. I mean, if you look at the particularly because of the trends in the South, in particular, even communities that are more or less you know you know majority white, the people who attend the public schools are not that. Like, and I think that's going to be something that we don't know how to deal with, because one thing that I've said to union people, like, well, how do we get more, you know, minority interest in teaching? I'm like, well, if I am from a family that struggled for two generations and I'm the first generation that can earn money, why the hell would I let my kid be a teacher with that education? Like, they should go earn some real money. It'll benefit everybody, you know? Yeah, Melissa, what do you think? You teach ESL. Right, yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about, like, you know, the fields that my students tend to go into. I mean, we've cut a bunch of programs at my college in recent years, and so the, the options are <laughs> are shrinking. But I would say that, like, healthcare, you know, nursing or nursing assistant, that kind of thing, early childhood education, and business. Those, right. those seem to be the things that interest my students. I have I have more female students than male students. I mean, if I'm generalizing broadly, but the young men are pulled toward business, with certain exceptions. There are definitely there are definitely men from well from Ethiopia that all want to go into nursing, which is a fascinating thing to me. But but you know, and then and then the women tend tend to lean toward nursing and, and early childhood education. Those seem to be the most compelling programs for them it would be interesting to, i'd be interested to know retention rates for them once they enter the field but i know that's probably not well studied yeah i don't i don't have that information unfortunately yeah. not so good on on that i mean the students that i see in our you know our pre-college uh program i mean they 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 tend to do pretty well once they mm-hmm. enter into the general college classes. We we work really hard to give them a lot of attention and a lot of support. But we are definitely the place where, you know, when you're talking about immigrant youth, depending on when they arrived in the country, you know, they'll graduate high school, but they're definitely not ready for college, a lot of them. And so they, you know, that, that's where we 
meet a lot of them, which is good. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad that we're here. But yeah, I mean, community college is not does not have stellar completion rates ever. But you know, I don't know. We do our best. <laughs> yeah, we do our best. And I think I think that most of the students I see are thinking very. They're thinking very practically. I mean, nobody nobody ever tells me that they want study literature or um, philosophy, right? I mean, they they're they're very practically minded, and the the shorter the shorter programs seem to be more appealing. And so, I, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I wish. I wish they had more of an opportunity to explore lots of different things the way the way affluent kids get to when they go to university population. So to to be fair, I mean uh, English majors are almost uh, non-existent now to the point that it's actually worrying educators that we don't have people that teach literacy. Also, one thing I will say to, to a lot of people is if you're not planning on going into something very specific like nursing, do whatever you're good at because your degree doesn't really matter. You're not going to probably work in it anyway. So like just have just having the degree is different than but it, it's it's hard to get people that particularly people from other countries where education tracks are much more professional and also much more clear cut from the beginning and also rarer to to kind of understand that part of our game but you know i i think i think healthcare is always going to be popular because at least right now it's uh it's a it's a growth field also a float field as long as we don't have health coverage for everyone yeah yeah i know exactly i mean the irony is is if we fix a lot of these problems like we still need a ton of nurses and a ton of doctors but uh we wouldn't need a whole lot of the other support staff we have in healthcare like Probably about 50% of the hospital. I mean, and there's a lot of that. Like, and that's why I think, Jeremy, like, that's why it's so hard to fix all this stuff is like, there's all these ripple effects in the way that a lot of our current societies is based around these things kind of going around the way they are and they're reaching kind of stress level limits. Gotcha. I think COVID, I think COVID's made that very clear. Oh, yeah. So I guess, uh, yeah, to, to wrap things up and hopefully not a downer note, although you never know, what is to be done, I guess? Is there anything that can be done by anybody aside, you know, who is not on some like really high powered state or federal level to it, to either address this or to prepare for the changes? I would say if you're in a union, start fighting for your union's priorities to change and to be more socially engaged in general, because it's going to be important to build a lot of outreach to the communities and change the way teachers are perceived. I also would say don't work for no pay ever. I don't care who you are and don't let anyone guilt you into it. Community outreach is super important. And I know that seems like a paradox, but it's going to be really important for us to do. And I, I also think I also think we have to wh- one thing I will say about this TikTok and all this other stuff. I don't think that's just a school failure or even the or even people's attitudes towards schools. I think one thing that we have to realize is a lot of people's, you know, interaction with with any sort of institution representing even vaguely a government institution is going to be the education system. And so their anger at those institutions usually gets manifested as the education system. We need to be kind of more I think we need to be very sympathetic to why people are so pissed off, but also channel that into more productive things. Yeah. And I, I, you know, the other thing I would say is like, we need to be, we need to be thinking that federal politicians aren't going to fix this for us because they clearly don't seem to be able to like, and even if they want to, it's not, it's just doesn't seem to be particularly on the table right now. And I, I'm not a big encourager of localism in general, but on, on this question, I think you like, you kind of have to deal with the problems that are specific to your general area to build this trust back up, and that's what you're going to have to do to do this. And and the other thing I would say is we, we shouldn't be pushing kids in the universities just to do it right now. I normally am all about university education, but I think right now the cost-benefit ratio, every kid is going to need, unfortunately, because of the general failures in the in the education system, some additional education outside of, of secondary school, I, unfortunately. But pushing them to traditional four-year universities right now probably not a great idea it's probably not worth it to a lot of these kids gotcha yeah i mean i agree with everything everything that derek said i mean i guess what would i add you know my my particular student population are are folks that tend to be pretty marginalized and they they sort of understand that they're not high priority by people (laughs) making decisions by people in power and i i feel like 
one of the things that I can do to sort of broaden, you know, broaden the idea of what's possible. So I, you know, I, I try to share with them a lot about things that are going on outside of their their world and examples of people working together and making change and building power and all those good things. And so just to give them that sense of being connected to something bigger and, and that idea that, you know, regular people, re- regular people can do things that improve the lives of regular people. And you mentioned earlier the universal preschool initiative that we passed here in Multnomah County. And I'm going to be having Emily, who's one of the, who's the, the lead organizer. She'll be coming back to my class to talk to the students about what that process was like. Really just focusing on that idea of like, these are people that didn't have a lot of skills in this area, but saw this need and, you know, were able to pull off something really quite amazing. And I just think it's such a good inspirational story. And my students always, you know, all the parents that I have among my student groups, they, they really, they can relate to like that. Yeah, like, yeah, free preschool, that's a thing that really could help people. And uh, so just trying to provide those examples, I think, is really important. And stories and yeah, that idea of just expanding the idea of what's possible. Awesome. Great. Thank you. All right. Well, that's pretty much, uh, unless anybody has any final comments or, or anything we missed, that is pretty much all I have for the evening. You know, thank you again for spending your evening uh, just chatting, you know, <laughs> on even more forced screen time, you know, because it's, yeah. uh, you know, it defines a lot of our existence nowadays. But I guess I can't really think of any other way to wrap up. Is there anything y'all would want to promote or plug either or suggestions as to if people wanted to f- learn more about the topic, where they could go, suggestions of where they could go learn more about this kind of thing? And if not, oh, well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, at Varn Blog, which is my place, you can hear more about me, but I don't normally talk about education. As far as like where you'd learn more about this, it's scattered around in policy papers that are freely available to the public. But in general, no, people aren't really making this very presentable and an easy easy to access way and 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 also to be completely fair some of these numbers in research we don't understand enough to really draw strong conclusions from yet i mean like like um like like i said like we don't even know what our batteries are comparing right now because you know yeah states have all had different rules the one thing i will say is if you want to get a, a good feel for for how this is understood within education generally, you can read Ed Week and, and then Chronicle of Higher Ed for the college perspective of it. Know that those are kind of insider mags for those profession fields, but that's where a lot of this stuff is actually talked about. And the rest of this stuff is public data, but you kind of have to know who to ask for it. So Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, well. I would just say that if you want to get a nice a nice look at what students like mine experience, you know, adult adult students going through adult basic skills classes, there's a publication called The Change Agent that is written uh, by students, and it's it's a really amazing amazing publication and gives a great view into the kinds of things that these students are thinking about. So I would always encourage people to check that out. Excellent, thank you. Well, yeah. again, uh, thank you all for joining us this evening. Who knows what who knows what the future will bring, folks? We sure don't. But um, yeah. But other than that, uh, yeah, I want to just uh, thank you for being here. And if nothing else, just say good night, I guess. Yeah. Night.